We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hi, I'm Seth. I'm an alcoholic. I got sober January 14th, 2009. So as uh, so I celebrated 13 years last week. So this is good timing to do this qualification. You know, right before my anniversary, a lot of memories came back of like my first meetings. And I mean, I I got sober in New York in January and it was, uh, it was frigid. And I was just recalling, you know, right before I opened the door to my first meeting, I had, I never felt more alone in my entire life. You know, now 13 years later, I, I feel like I belong here on the planet. And if you would have told four-year-old me that that was a possible feeling that I felt like I belonged on the planet, I wouldn't have believed you. Actually, if you would have told 40-year-old me when I got, went to my first meeting that that was possible to feel okay and that I belong somewhere, I wouldn't have believed you either. Actually, if you would have, if you would have given me a list of what my life looks like now, 13 years later, at my first meeting, I probably wouldn't have stayed. <laughs> yeah, I would not have asked for anything in my life. And I think that's what they mean by beyond your wildest dreams. It's like I wouldn't have asked for the things in my life that bring me so much joy. I thought life was about celebrating, not even celebrating, adoring me. Oscar awards or, I mean, I don't even do anything that could get me an Oscar, but I sure wanted one. If you had a book deal, I wanted that. I'm not even a writer. So it was just like the material world and the things in it were either evidence that I was better than you or I sucked. And that's just how I saw life. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm a parent. I wouldn't have asked for that. A spouse, I wouldn't have asked for that. I just bought a house. I definitely would not have asked for that. It doesn't have any heat. It's freezing here again. You know, I, I'm reminded that what I have going on, right? Like my, my dad just got out of prison and lived with us for a month. That was fun. And I'm being sarcastic. And, you know, we're moving and the house doesn't have any heat and I'm having surgery next month. And there's this litany of stuff happening. And I'm, I would say appropriately stressed about it, but I just remember my first, I think I was six months sober. I hadn't worked the steps and I hadn't had a drink in six months and I was, I had no solution. I remember I couldn't even leave my apartment to mail a package. I had a direct TV dish that needed to be returned and direct TV sent me the box a mailing label, literally all I had to do was put the dish in the box, seal it, put a mailing label, and walk to UPS and just hand it to them. I didn't have to hand them a credit card. I didn't have to do anything. And I I had one of only two panic attacks in my entire life that day because I, I was terrified to leave my apartment to mail a package. So by contrast, like what's actually happening, like my dad getting out of prison, we bought a house that has no heat in the winter. Um I'm having surgery next month. I have a three and a half year old. There's just like a lot of stuff happening 
And I'm reminded that like, um, you know, as an alcoholic, I lived in a world and an attitude of extremes. And now I kind of live in the middle, um, which is like, yeah, it's appropriate to be stressed about a lot of this stuff, but it's not overwhelming and it doesn't overtake my life and it doesn't rob me of joy. Um, yeah, I was just right before doing this, I was actually on another meeting where they had hijacked me to speak. And, um, you know, uh, so many people were talking and one of, uh, it would remind Thich Nhat Hanh just passed away and uh, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist and teach meditation and, um, those things aren't directly related, but, um, I had just read a quote by him about, um, you know, the purpose of mindfulness. I don't know if he used the word purpose, but is that you can walk down the street and, you know, observe a small flower, purple flower. I think he said, so to me, it's like I just got off this meeting before I was a little stressed out before the meeting. And um, by the end of the meeting, I felt realigned uh, with feeling OK. And I walked upstairs and my wife and my three year old were doing yoga. Um, and I was just captured by the moment. I was captured, struck present by how beautiful I thought that was. And um and it had nothing to do with me. So <clears throat> anyway, that's today. And I'm going to get to, I think, drinking was the problem. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I my kid is dropping stuff on the floor. I don't know if you can hear that above my head. Um, it's a little distracting. I'm going to pause and send a little text upstairs. This can be edited. I'm aware of that. So. Um, but anyway, so I, you know, my first memories as a kid were just feeling like I didn't belong, that I wasn't okay, that I wasn't taken care of, that I wasn't going to be taken care of, um, that I was living in a hostile universe. Um, and basically that I wasn't going to be okay. Um, and and also I desperately wanted to connect to people. I was aware of that as a small kid, like I felt isolated and alone and I just desperately wanted to connect to people. And, um, I don't know as, as it would happen because this would you know, be a memory later in life, but I just remember like it was four or five, I don't remember six maybe. And my parents had gotten divorced, but my dad had left his Neil Young records behind for some reason. Um, and Neil's still one of my favorites. So, but I remember like obsessively listening to Neil Young when I was like, whatever age it was, five or six, um, there was just something in those songs. And, and, um, by the way, if you're five or six year old is obsessively listening to Neil Young records from the seventies, maybe send them to a 12 step program immediately. Um, there was just some sort of longing and, um, disconnection that I heard in the singing and, I used and I used to just obsessively listen to those records uh, to feel connected because that's what I desperately wanted was to feel connected to something. And I couldn't navigate the space between me and another person. And those were like all the feelings. And, you know, I was told I was a smart kid and I just my experience internally didn't match what I was told about myself and what I thought I was supposed to be like, um, which is smart 
and confident and capable. And I do think that there was, you know, I see pictures of me as a two-year-old and I think I was confident, um, sweet little kid. Um, but I was also just terrified and the environment I grew up in was, um, chaotic and, um, and didn't nurture a sense of, uh, okayness. And so, and, you know, I used to think that that was why I drank, um, and my alcoholism will, you know, where it's cunning, baffling and powerful is it will neatly hide behind any external circumstance to avoid detection. So, you know, my parents are the problem. My job's the problem. The first wife was the problem, whatever, um, the, whatever the problem was, um, where I'm not getting what I want. And the big problem is, is that I think what I need to get in the real world to feel okay is accurate. I, I don't need to get any of those things. Like I started this qualification by saying none of the things I had in my life were things I would have asked for. And they are sources of great joy. You know, and I'll say the corollary to that is also, um, or another thought about that is like, I could have gone down a totally different path in sobriety 13 years ago with a totally different set of circumstances. And I think the common thread would be if I kept seeking this higher power and doing the work in AA, I probably could be content with a whole other set of material things. Um, so it's never the material world that is informing my internal condition. Um, you know, I first put booze in there and then I tried to put a lot of other things in there and none of them, uh, made me feel connected and okay. And so, you know, those were the feelings that I felt before I ever started drinking. And, um, when I was third, no, not third. Well, actually when I was 13, I took my first drink, but I was scared of it. Um, but when I was 15, I went to a neighbor's, I think it was a Christmas party. I don't know. It was a party of teenagers who were slightly older than me and they were the cool kids. And, um, I think I just made a decision to get drunk. Um, I grew up in a family that where I heard booze was bad. Um, I think there were generations above me that were alcoholics in my family, um, you know, like my grandparents just didn't drink, um, but they were crispy, man. Um, so, and atheists. So there was like no solution for the alcoholism. And so when I drank at that neighbor's party for the first time, um, it's funny because the big book talks about like phenomenon of craving. I experienced that on my first drink. That doesn't, you know, distinguish me from other alcoholics who might have developed it, but like, my drinking that first night was no different than any other night for the next um, 25 years, which was I wanted to get drunk. I wanted to change the way I felt inside. I intended on hitting some mark, some reasonable place of drunkness, and I missed the mark. I skidded way past it. Um, and so my first drunk experience was I was going to have a glass, a glass or two of whatever, and I ended up drinking an entire bottle and I think I did some drugs and I don't remember. Um, but I blacked out. I was completely numb and I vomited for like a day or two. And I don't know why I ever took a second drink. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. Why I ever got, went to a second night of drinking <clears throat> after that experience. I felt terrible. Um, I felt like 
that that hangover is still maybe the worst I've ever felt. Um, it felt like an elephant was sitting on my head and my chest. I could not get out of bed. And I just felt, um, I felt horrible. I felt like I was going to die. So I don't, I can't answer the question. Well, why did you take another drink? Um, and the, I could hypothesize, but um, that would be experience, strength, and hypothesis. So what I can say, though, is at that same time, I was, like, obsessed with the movie Sid and Nancy. I, like, uh, this will date me. I, was, well, I had it on VHS, so I would, like, watch it over and over again. And I don't know, the life they were living, like, shooting heroin uh, using toilet water with vomit in it seemed appealing to me somehow. That, that I can tell you is a fact. There's just something that looked like uh, it took me away. And that's the same thing I heard in Neil Young records. Like, take me away from this place. Like, get me out of here. Get me the fuck out of here. It's not okay here. Um, and, you know, I guess the word in the steps that just resonates for me over and over and over again, and maybe is the most important word for me, is care. I just never felt cared for. Whether I was or not, who knows? Um, I don't have a perspective on life that's accurate, and I don't have a lot of memories, but I'd never felt cared for. I can tell you that feeling is, um, that's true. And I felt it yesterday, you know? I felt it yesterday, too. Um, there's a lot going on here at home, and, um, you know, when you buy a house in the winter on the East Coast and it doesn't have heat, it's a, it's really not that hard to feel like, that's okay. Like I'm a Buddhist, but I'm not a fucking Buddha. You know, it's like, that's upsetting. I've got a three and a half year old. Right. So basically my drinking <laughs> from that first time till my last time, I mean, wasn't that different, but I will say that. So my drinking was unremarkable for the next, you know, 25 years or something yeah 25 years um but it did work it really like i you know it it relieved me of all of those feelings of inadequacy and disconnection and when i drank i really felt like i could connect to people um and really what it probably removed was a lot of the way I saw myself, which was less than and self-judgment and, and ugly and not and all the stuff that I <laughs> realized in my fifth step were my attitudes about myself and the world. Um, I don't know. I want to hypothesize there either. Just, it really worked for a long time to make me feel relieved. Um, and um, there's not much to talk about specifically about i mean it was just like two and a half decades i don't know how to sum that up really but i can say like um you know my first night of college i remember making the decision like i did when i was 15 to like i'm gonna now i'm gonna get fucked up and but the same thing happened like i couldn't have three i had i don't even remember how much i had that night i just could not stop drinking and i woke up at um you know 4 a.m or i came to i wasn't asleep i came to at 4 a.m uh in a shower naked with a woman who was not my girlfriend so i mean that just is kind of what my drinking looked like um i intended to 
feel relieved and I end up missing the mark and I black out or numb out and end up, um, you know, in situations that I, I wouldn't have intended. Um, and that's like the hallmark of my drinking is that my actions when I was drinking never met my intentions. And, you know, fortunately recovery looks a lot like the opposite of that is my, um, my actions look a lot like my best intentions, but not like my first thought. Like I'm still plagued with, not plagued, that's the wrong word. I'm not plagued any longer, but I can still see and witness like negativity and my first thought on any situation um, is usually that I'm not being taken care of. And that's probably not true. So yeah, that's, that's, that's how I drank. Um, I drank my way through a marriage that was a decade long where I lived in LA and I don't remember what much of it. I remember when I made amends to her, it was just kind of like, yeah, like what was I thinking being married? Like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't relate to anyone. Why was I married? But you know, why I was married is because I thought again, like if I'm married, then I'm okay. Like if I have a job, then I'm okay. All this evidence in the real world that I was okay in spite of how I felt. Um, and I like, you know, again, I always look toward the outside to see how I was doing. So I, I relentlessly pursued a career in music, um, without very much material success. So, but I was so, you know, hell bent on it and it was such a, a, uh, an atmosphere of drinking that I didn't, you know, realize all the credit card debt that was piling up while I was pretending to have a career. And like <clears throat> at the end of when my band broke up, <laughs> like our big joke was, you know, we should just call tour vacation because really that's what we're doing. Like we're not making any money. We're just putting it on credit cards. And, but for me, like evidence that I was okay, that I was in a rock band and we were on tour in spite of all the evidence that we were going broke and it wasn't very successful, um, which is also like just what my drinking life and my thought life looked like. It was like, if, if I think I'm doing the thing that will make me feel okay inside and that you'll look at, Oh, I just remembered like this, this popped into my head at how important it was me was to me to have my first marriage announced in the New York times. Like somehow that legitimized me as a human being and in it, it said, you know, I was a musician and I was whatever it said. And it's like, okay, now I'm legitimate. The New York times has given me their stamp of approval. And it's just so reminiscent of like, um, you know, Bill's story in the big book, like he, he, his relentless pursuit to be acknowledged, um, which to me for myself just points to like a real deficit of self-esteem. Like I just didn't feel okay or know I was okay. And, you know, I drank for a decade in LA and it looked a lot like I was in a rock band and it looked a lot like, um, I'm just going to a show tonight. And that's pretty much, and I, I had, I had jobs on the side. I would say I even call them day jobs. They were, um, I was loosely employed. I mean, I had jobs. They just like, I didn't care about them. They were just in order to put a little food on the table and I was not a responsible husband and I wasn't responsible to myself. And it was, um, 
like I, I always talk to my one friend who's a writer, someone on a network TV show offered me a writing job because um, he really liked me and thought I was funny and wanted to mentor me. Uh, and it's like so hard to say. I fucking turned it down because you don't know I'm supposed to be a rock star. So take your network television job and shove it up here. You know, like this is the attitude. It is crazy. There, like, there are very few of those jobs and people clamoring, people like graduating from like um, Ivy League schools or moving to LA to be writers on TV. This is 20 years ago, you know, um, when there was still television. And, um, and I was too good for that job because in my mind, if I took this job, which was important, meaning like, you know, it was serious. It's like, I had to be responsible to it. It meant I wasn't a musician. And if I'm not a musician, then I'm not valid or worthy. And, and so I had all of these machinations in my mind about how to live life so that I could be seen as okay. And the problem is anytime something was successful, I still wouldn't feel okay. So it still wouldn't matter. Um, and yeah, so I, I, I mean, I, I lived in LA for a decade. And so I, I mean, this is a conservative estimate. I probably drove drunk 1500 to 2000 times. Um, and the same thing happened every night I would intend to, um, only have a couple drinks because I was going to a show and then I would have uh, what the thing with my, the way I drank is, I guess I'll call it my alcoholism is that, you know, and maybe it's everybody, but like the person who took the first drink, the person who makes a decision to take the first drink doesn't exist. Once that, once I have that drink, I don't know what happens to that person. It's something molecularly seems to change internally and any decision or any, any sense of uh, control that I had before I took that first drink. And it's probably an illusion of control as the big book talks about um, is out the window. And um, so that, so I drove drunk thousands of times uh, in LA. Um, it was the, you know, I, I got very lucky that, uh, and so did the person I didn't hit that I never got into an accident. Um, and, you know, I remember driving and vomiting on myself. You know, I remember falling over at a show and um, knocking a table over and people looking at me horrified. And then I stood up and got in the car and drove. Um, there was one night um, that I remember, you know, I had this, I had this, thing like alcohol was legal and I really didn't drink at home that much. So I'm not an alcoholic. By the way, I, I had no idea what an alcoholic really was until I came to AA and identified, but you know, I would have, I could have a bottle of vodka in my freezer for a month. The problem is, is that that gave me the delusion of control because, um, you know, I would sit in there for a month. You know, I can do the same thing with Ben and Jerry's too. I can sit there. The problem is, is once I crack the seal, all bets are off. And I remember this one night um, where I was making the terrible decision to move back to the East Coast because this guy I was in this band with had moved here. And we decided to get the band back together because we had a record that was doing okay. And because I had no sense of self, and no ability to evaluate 
anything, like including the fact that this relationship to the band and alcohol were really bad for me. Um, and, you know, we, I decided I would move back to the East coast and we would keep the band going. And so I'm on the phone with him and, you know, it's like, let's have a drink. Cause that's all we did. I mean, we, you know, like, like Bill talks about in Bill's story, like, you know, he was golfing, you know, golf fever caught up with him, but really he was drinking, you know, like all like drinking just was the primary activity. And then anything like making a record or having a job or being married were way secondary. So, um, you know, we, I cracked open the bottle of vodka and in the end of an hour long phone call where we were like, had rededicated ourselves to conquering the world. Um, I had drank the whole bottle of vodka. <laughs> Unfortunately, I had also made plans that night to go out to dinner to meet like some, like the job I had, some work people who were in town. So after drinking a bottle of vodka in something like an hour, I got in my car and I drove to this restaurant and um, I sat down at the table and I ordered an, another vodka something, martini, I think probably. And this horrible thing happened as I sat there. I went completely numb and felt I like I couldn't even stand. And at the same exact time, I had I knew I had to pee like desperately, like I had just drank a bottle of vodka. And I was trying to figure out how I can get to the bathroom without falling over. Like I had totally lost use of my legs. And as I'm contemplating this, somebody at the table told a joke and I started laughing. And as I started laughing, I started peeing. I had no control over it. Um, and I was wearing shorts and it came flying out of the shorts. And I was like, oh, fuck. And this is where like this is you know, this is no longer a funny story to me, but when I first got sober, it was, and before I got sober, it was hysterical. This was hysterical. I loved the attention I got from my, um, idiotic drinking behavior. Um, and, and because I thought I was a genius with the way I managed it. Right. So instead of like, so I'm like, the pea's going to fly across the, under the table and hit those people. I have to, what can I do to cover it up? So nobody's looking at me because if somebody's telling this joke or whatever, and there's a bottle of water on the table. So I knock it over and pretend it's an accident and it goes spilling on all the people on the other side of the table. So that just in case my pee um, hit them, they wouldn't know it was my pee, <laughs> which I don't think, I don't think it hit them. I think it stayed in my pants. So I ate whatever came as quickly as I could, and I went and got in my car again. So now I have um, a bottle of vodka in me, two vodka martinis, I think one sushi roll. Um, I now have pee all over my shorts. And, oh, yeah, I had planned to go on a date after this. <laughs> Which, And here's like the crazy drinking attitude, behavior, and delusion. It's like... I, um, I really thought if I kept up my commitments that that meant I didn't have a drinking problem. So if I show up for this date, then I, then I'm okay. Even though when I showed up to this date, I was wasted, could barely walk and had pee all over my shorts. I had pee all over my shorts and thought I, I think it was in my socks and my shoes too. And I thought I could show up for a date. So, um, I did. 
but I was very late because of alcoholic timing. And the woman who I was supposed to go on a date with had bought tickets to a movie and had gone in. She had stopped waiting for me. And so the two ushers who were like standing out at the door, I said, you know, I'm not going to slur my words right now, but I said very slurrily, um, there's someone in there with my tickets and I, can I just go find her? And they both like looked at me covered in piss, wasted, barely able to stand. And they were like, uh, no, sir, <laughs> like we can't let you in. And like in that moment, I kind of saw myself how they saw me. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And by the way, I drank for another 10 years. So, um, I went into my car at the sunset five and I slept for like four hours until um, I slept the drunk off and then drove home. And that's just, you know, and then I moved East and drank that way for another 10 years. Um, and again, it was like some fun. Um, the fun was less frequent and, you know, my drinking just followed the same course of the disease that it does you know, and Bill's story, which is it was fun and relief. And then it became a necessity. I could not have any interactions without it. And then it got to the point where it was just oblivion. And, um, and the thing is, is that my, my resentments and how I saw how I'd been treated by the world and other people were really a plague. They really were front and center in my mind constantly. And so the the two main obsessions I had were uh, harm done to me um, and uh, I have to have a drink. And the only thing that drowned out either of those two thoughts was alcohol until it stopped working. And um, so my last year of drinking um, really was, you know, a friend died of alcoholism and um, a girlfriend broke up with me. Um, and I was like, you know, I was a sound engineer at a venue where I worked, you know, three or four or five nights a week. And I had a car and I, I remember making the decision, like, you know, the great thing about moving to New York was you don't have to drive anymore. So you get wasted all hours of the day, all times of night, still get home with taxis and subways. And, um, but so I would, I would drive to work and my car was insurance against not drinking because I'm a good person. Right. And so like, I wouldn't drive drunk, even though, by the way, at this point I had driven drunk thousands of times in my life, but that's just like the delusion, the insanity before the first drink is like, I'm in control. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to have the thought that I want to drink. And, um, so uh, I got it and I would drive as insurance against drinking and I would get to the venue and, um, you know, the, the voice would just start in my head. You can have a drink. You feel terrible. You're hungover. Have a drink, have a drink. You should have a drink. Look at they're free. You can't turn down a free drink. You're going to be here for the next three or four or five hours. Just have a drink, you know, like just incessant, like my toddler upstairs. Um, and I can, I can, <laughs> I can see what alcoholism looks like when I look at my toddler. Uh, the difference is that my toddler, after defying me and, and being obstinate will eventually ask for help when he can't do something. Uh, me as an alcoholic will um, go to the bitter end, not asking for help. So it's a miracle we ever do. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I, I finally would succumb to my thinking of 
okay, just have one drink. You don't have to drive for five hours. So you can have a drink. It'll make you feel better. And then, you know, every night would be the same for that whole year. My last year of drinking, like I would intend to have a couple to make myself feel better. And that would be 20 or 30. I'd be driving through checkpoints at the Midtown Tunnel. And then I would spend two or three hours the next morning looking for my car. I had no idea where it was parked. Um, And so... You know, that year, like this woman who was a like a delightful human being and probably may belong in another program, um, she broke up with me. And, you know, my brother looked like he was having serious uh, alcohol or drug issues. And so I went to Al-Anon and um, realized I had walked into the wrong door, um, although I belong there, too. And um what happened that later that fall was um, that a friend of mine died, another friend, not from alcoholism, from cancer. And I went to her funeral in England. And, you know, my friend Lizzie was like a delight, a beautiful, spirited, colorful human. And um, <clears throat> I went to her funeral. And it was tra- it's really a tragedy. She died when she was 38 and she had a three-year-old. And um, I went to her funeral with a bunch of my other drunk friends. And I was sitting at the, I see, I almost just called it an after party. That's what an alcoholic calls the the wake, I guess, um, after the funeral. And, um, and I was sitting there on the couch and I was drunk and her daughter walked in <clears throat> and she said, where's mommy? And I don't know. like it just struck me sober um here's this like beautiful angelic little girl who walked into the room and really had no idea that her life was permanently altered in a very tragic way and in that moment i was like what am i doing with my life Um, my friend lizzie would give anything for five more minutes with her daughter and you know using the language of aa my friend lizzie had what i wanted she knew or it seemed like she knew how to live life. She was effervescent and joyful. Her wedding was in this church hall in, in England where there are all these like beautiful, colorful balloons. And, you know, I wanted that. Her life was in technicolor and mine was drab, like the, uh, like the photos of World War II. And, um, and in that moment, I was like, I would do anything to trade places with Lizzie like anything to give her another moment with her beautiful daughter. And I knew I couldn't give that to her. Um, And, you know, it brought up for me, like how I thought about life, which was just like, it was an endurance test. I would actually at that point have been relieved to have my life taken from me. I remember being on a climbing up to a rooftop in Brooklyn on July 4th, a couple of years earlier And, um, I was very drunk and it was eight stories up, I think. And I looked down and I saw the hard cement and something in my head said, just let go, you know, like just jump, fall, die. Um, and I don't know what kept me climbing up the ladder, but I had this real thought, like, this is the one time you can actually do this and it can look like an accident. Um, I guess I had perspective or, 
Uh, I would have been ashamed to have killed myself. I don't know. But whatever happened in that moment where I didn't do it, um, I, I, I realized that life was really just about too hard for me. And it just felt like an endurance test that I wanted to be relieved of. And so in this moment at Lizzie's funeral, I was like, I just, I'm, I'm wasting my life and I wish I could live life like Lizzie. So maybe I could, maybe I could get there. What she would do to have five more minutes with her daughter. And I don't even want to be on this planet. And so I resolved I was going to get sober, which I didn't even know what that was. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I had also made plans uh, with all my drunk friends there to have a big 40th birthday blowout a month later. So, like, I'm not going to disappoint anybody. (laughs) Um, So I went home. And but for the whole month of December, I did like there was this consciousness about like. I really don't want to drink. And, you know, I was in my bedroom and, you know, at this point, the only voice of reason that, you know, anything that sounded like logic was Judge Judy. I don't know. Judge Judy might have saved my life because I obsessively watched her when I was trying not to drink because it sounded like she was like this portal to logic and things making sense in the same way Spock was when I was a kid. I desperately wanted to be Spock. And I realized later it's because he experienced no emotions, not because he was logical. I mean, he was kind of handsome and hip too. So I kind of wanted to be that. But so I remember this one episode of Judge Judy where um, this guy who was the defendant, I guess, um, they were, you know, the plaintiffs were describing like he's locked in his bedroom and he doesn't even leave there to go to the bathroom. He pees in bottles and just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I had this thought in my head, oof, that guy's an alcoholic. So as I sat in my own bedroom that December and I looked around my bedroom, which had like bottles, Poland spring bottles filled with pee, like I wasn't even leaving my bedroom to, to pee. I was like, oh my gosh, I might be an alcoholic. And a couple of weeks later, um, I went to the doctor because they had found a little growth on my thyroid. And um, as I sat in his office, he did an ultrasound, I guess, or a sonogram. I don't know what they do. He was looking at it. Um, and, you know, he said, that looks good. That looks okay. That looks good. And then there was this long pause where he said nothing. And it felt like an hour, but it was probably like 10 seconds. "Hmm." And in that 10 seconds, something happened that had never happened in my entire life before. I was like, I don't want to die. Like, if this is cancer, I don't want to die. I'm going to do anything this guy tells me. Um, Eat broccoli, do push-ups, radiation, whatever. And um, it was a dramatic moment because I'm a drama queen. So it's like I'm not going to see the subtleties of life, you know. And so in that moment, it was impossible to ignore that, like, just six weeks before, I had preferred to die at my friend's funeral if I could change places with her. And um, and now I had this will to live. And it was impossible to ignore. I was going to do whatever this doctor told me to do. Um, but I was still going to let alcohol and the thinking around alcohol run my life. And so from that point to going to my first meeting meeting was probably a couple of weeks. I still had my 40th birthday, which was 
went well enough that I went to my first, I called my a friend the next day to take me to my first AA meeting. Um, and so I walked into my first AA meeting broken, bereft, bankrupt. Um, I had run out of my own ideas. As I said, it was freezing out. And I thought that I would probably never have a whiskey again to warm me up. And so I had never felt colder or more lonely. And the door opened and there was this guy there, Jimmy Z, and he was grizzled and he had a smirk on his face. And, uh, and, uh, he greeted me and it was like, a. and my friend who took me to the meeting said, I don't, I found this out later. She said, I'm getting choked up because Jimmy died recently, not, not of alcoholism of cancer. And this guy, I mean, he might've saved my life. He took me out for lunch, like every day for six months. And he had this smirk on his face and my friend, my friend had whispered in his ear, he's just like you. And, uh, I walked upstairs and the guy who was chairing the meeting was a guy I used to get drunk with. And he, when he saw me, my, my friend who brought me to the meeting said, Hey, uh, this is Seth. And he turned around and he said, I know you. And I, rem- I remember I, I had just seen him a year before at my friend who died of alcoholism's funeral. And I remember the look he gave me at that funeral was, and he would corroborate this just real pity, right? Like it was at the bottom of my, my drinking. And this look <laughs> on this day at my first meeting was, well, it looked like shock. I would find out later it was gratitude. And I was like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm going to run into all the people that I used to drink with at this AA thing. I'll stay. And I'm going to tell you, 13 years later, and probably four or 5,000 meetings later, um, I've never run into another person that I, I drank with, um, other than one person who came to my home group. But we only found out that we drank in the same room, but we didn't drink together. And so I came into AA as an atheist, know-it-all, self-reliant, untrustful, untrustworthy, uh, determined, willful asshole, arrogant. And uh, I wasn't going to believe in a higher power. I wasn't going to believe in anything, but I just was out of my own ideas. And it's impossible for me to not see that at that first meeting, the thing that I had felt like I had lacked my whole life, which was being taken care of, wasn't happening for me. Um, if if he wasn't at that first meeting, I, I don't know if I would have stayed. And so to have somebody who I drank with, who had the same record collection as me, who you know I went to a ball game with, and I think I had like he had his last drink with me, I think, or second to last drink with me. Obviously, I gave people pause enough to stop drinking. Um, you know, I it's like, I don't know what would have happened if he wasn't at that meeting. And um, so I, a couple of days later, I asked him to be my sponsor. And, um, and he said, yes. And, you know, look, I mean, he saved my life because he took all 43 of my phone calls every day for as long as he was my sponsor. You know, that's an exaggeration, but you know, it, I didn't do the steps and, but you know, his 
he picked up the phone anyway. And, you know, I didn't do that much work and, and, uh, but he probably saved my life. Like Jimmy probably saved my life. Like Lizzie, you know, probably saved my life. Like there's so many people. And if, and that's the thing with this higher power experience, it's like, um, my second step being restored to sanity means that I stop and pause long enough to see that my road was dotted with all these white light experiences that I would have never recognized before I got sober. And unfortunately, I didn't do the steps for about four years. And I was as miserable as you could be before getting back to the place of wanting to end my own life or take a drink. And I guess, you know, the best way to describe it is I, I, you know, my sponsor told me sort of what to do. And then, you know, he, he wasn't that available and I didn't really care at a certain point because I didn't really have to do any work. We did do a fifth step. And because of the way it was laid out for me, I, in spite of what the big book says, I interpreted that as this is the opportunity to tell somebody what's, what wrong has been done to me. I didn't realize there was a, my part element to it. We started doing a ninth step, but basically for four and a half years, I did nothing other than go to meeting. And I went to a lot of meetings. And as my sponsor sponsors likes to say, uh, white, white knuckling it is under undervalued <laughs> because I don't know if I have another drink in me, but I did have another meeting in me and the kindness that I experienced at those meetings. Uh, I, you know, I coasted on fellowship for four years and I really navigated AA the way, you know, in retrospect, I realized I navigated life, which is if I'm well-liked, if I'm important, if I chair a dozen meetings, um, then I, then I'm, then I'm okay. And the same way, like I, I, in getting married, it was like, well, if I'm married, I must be okay. Well, it's like, if I go to a lot of meetings, I must be okay. And meetings saved my life, but they didn't, they didn't transform me. And so at four and a half years sober, the sponsor was the problem. The girlfriend was the problem. The job was the problem. And I was like, maybe, um, maybe there's something else going on here. And so I broke up with the sponsor of the girlfriend and I found a sponsor who had less time than me, who I had watched recover somebody who came in like a drowned rat, like a puddle on the floor. And I watched them transform. And I was like, that's what I want. That's what I need. And I jumped into the steps and doing the work with my sponsor, like, like a monk. Cause I was, mis- I was miserable and my life radically transformed from doing the steps. It took a while and I would, it was not fun. You know, there's lots of stuff in the big book about like, most of us didn't like, you know, the process required. Right. So the big book tells me you're probably not going to like it. And then the nine step promises say, you know, if I'm painstaking about this, right. And then it ends by saying, you know, they'll come if we work for them, painstaking work, you're not going to like it. Um, it's all right there in black and white. And so it's not fun. Growth is not easy or comfortable. But, you know, the thing with it is, is like if I break a bone and I still try to walk on my leg, it's the pain is going to get worse and the damage is going to be irreparable. So I have to sit long enough for something to heal, to be examined, you know, to put a cast on it. And that's what like my first that year going through the steps at year five was like. I was, you know, single living on my own for the first time. I got my uh, an apartment um, that I could be proud of. I was working at a decent job and I just threw myself into the steps and I threw myself into 
being a sponsor after I'd gone through the steps and um, my life transformed. I had never for 45 years at that point been suspicious of my own mind in spite of the fact that, you know, that's what I hear a lot in AA is like, my thoughts aren't that reliable. Um, and my real entry point for this is the idea of, well, can you call your drinking behavior sane? And the answer is like, no, that's why your first step is so important to me. It's like, no, I can't. Anytime I pick up, picked up a first drink, it's nuts based on what happens every time I picked up a first drink. So that's like my gateway idea to the the reality that maybe all of my thinking can be somewhat distorted. And that's just not alcoholism. That's just like all human beings have distorted thinking. The problem is, is that mind, mind plagues me. It's all I ever think of. And it's in the way for me getting connected to a higher power. And it will lead me back to drinking if I don't work with my mind. And that's what all the steps seem to get me is uh, to break the spell of my own mind. Um, you know, I, I'm so reminded, like, my, I don't, I haven't revisited my concept of a higher power because I don't really know what it is. But I think that the idea that a self-reliant atheist is going to sit down and write a second step because I desperately need to believe there's something going to take care of me. As soon as, as soon as my pen hits the paper, that's all the willingness I need. What I write, I don't think is all that important. Right. And so that breaks the spell of my own mind, sitting down and, you know, writing a first step, seeing all the evidence that I can't drink safely. Um, unmanageability, as I was taught, was I have an unmanageable thought life, right? Like I talked about, um, you know, not being able to leave the house to mail a package. Like the feelings of overwhelm and distress that happened when my mind never matched the situation before I got sober and well into sobriety. Like it's a distorted lens that I see through things with, and I cannot align myself with the fact that I'm going to be okay, which is as simple a definition for higher powers I ever really need. I'm going to be okay right now. Uh, I've never talked to myself with that voice that I'm going to be okay right now. And so, you know, the rest of the steps, I do want to turn it over to this, this, um, this power that I want to believe exists. I do, but I've only made a decision in the third step. And I was taught like my will in my life or my thoughts and my actions. And I have to turn those over to a higher power and making a decision requires that I do some work based on that decision, which is the rest of the steps. Um, and once I do the rest of the steps, sometimes I can do the third step without taking a lot of action. I can just go, Oh, I want to turn this over to my higher power now, but I have no experience of my higher power. That's the thing. It's like, um, this is third generation, but someone says, told me that this guy Clancy, I, who was uh, big in California, a for a long time said something like a in describing AA, AA, AA is a program where, um, when someone who the problem still rages is convinced by someone in who the problem has been solved to take a radical course of action, they don't yet believe in. And that's this whole beautiful thing is this isn't a spiritual experiment to me. I have to take actions that I'm not really sure will work for me um, to see if they're true. And it turns out for me that I was a basic alcoholic and my recovery like is basically like the big book describes. Um, 
I have had a an experience I can't really describe, but I've been okay. And some of, I mean, there's been way worse shit that's happened since I've gotten sober than before I got sober. Um, you know, my dad went to prison four years ago for a brutal crime. And, um, you know, I called my sponsor and told her what happened. And it was like, kind of, she stuttered. There was like dead silence. I called my Al-Anon sponsor. I called my therapist. I called my Buddhist meditation teacher. Uh, nobody knew what to do or say. And I was like, oh my gosh, it really is me in this higher power thing. And fortunately, I had started doing this real, um, this this meditation practice that I really uh, committed to because it really spoke to me. And the first thing I heard in this meditation practice was, we're just making friends with our own mind. We're not trying to squash or eliminate thinking. We're just trying to accommodate it with an attitude of friendliness. In a moment, I realized, you know, when I heard that, that I had never been friend that friendly to myself. And it was kind of devastating, but kind of beautiful simultaneously. Um, that that's all I'm trying to cultivate. And, you know, that's, that's something that felt attainable, like trying to come up with some, like, cause I thought meditation was about squashing my thinking, eliminate my thinking, achieving bliss, going to a different realm, floating away on a, on a bliss cloud. Um, but it turns out that really like the 11 step prayer talks about is like, I'm really bringing all these qualities of my higher power that I discover and align with when I'm doing all the step work into the real world and the practice of practicing these principles and helping other people in the 12th step uh, is where I, I find like this full circle where I get aligned. I have heard the phrase a lot in AA, you can't keep it if you don't give it away and which makes sense. And it's true. But also then I heard somebody once say, um, you can't get it until you give it away. And I was like, oh, right. I fundamentally, before I got sober, lived a transactional existence where everything was quid pro quo, tit for tat. I got to give something to get something. If you gave me something, I owed you something. Um, and it really isn't until I give this away, give this away with a real spirit of wonder that I feel aligned. And I always have to take the first step. It's the same experiment of the third step going into the fourth step. It's like, I have to do these things. I'm not sure will work to see if they do. And that's what happened. My dad went to prison. None of my spiritual advisors could tell me what to do other than stay in the day and keep helping people. And that's what I did. So for months, nobody knew what happened to my dad. I just got on the phone with sponsees and read the big book and tried to be of service to them. And all of my, all of these people, my sponsors, my meditation teacher, and my therapist all did say the same thing though. Now, now is your, now is your time to receive the love that's available to you. And what I learned through doing, um, taking that on in spite of how, like, I still have this transactional DNA, it feels like, and it's so hard to ask for help and receive it without having, feeling like I have to give something. But I had no choice because I was so upset. That's, you know, an understatement. I was so confused, desperate, um, emotional. My ego was smashed again. Um, I had to ask for help and I had to receive it. 
I was without choice. And what I discovered through asking for help and getting it is it's only my mind that's the impediment to receiving all of what God has to offer me in terms of love. I got everything I asked for, all the help I needed. Um, and it sort of did start with giving it away. Um, and that's the thing that, um, you know, if you asked me 20 years ago, what do I want for my life? I would have said, I just don't want to resent my dad anymore. I really just want to be relieved of that. It's such a plague. Um, I would never have chosen the circumstances with, which led me to getting um, more on board with the higher power um, that I want to believe exists. Um, and through so many series of events, I had to um, stay in the day and take the actions that I was told to take. And I, I discovered, uh, you know, not on the, on a dime, but months and months later that my resentment had been lifted. I came to the thought that, you know, you know, as they say, is a little quick idiom, you know, heard people, heard people. So yeah. Uh, but really like I had to testify at my dad's trial and I debated it and I heard some of the evidence and I thought, uh, this, this thought came to me, um, this guy has never been shown any tenderness and mercy in his entire life. And he's in his seventies. Can I be that guy? Can I be the guy it talks about in the 11th step? Can I be my best self right now? Who do I want my child to see me be? And that's often my shortcut to the seventh step is like, who do I want my kid to see me be now? Um, who would I want to be 20 years from now today? Um, and so I, um, I dug into being helpful and generous uh, to this person that I had resented for so long and my resentment's gone. And really that's all I ever wanted uh, for my life. And what I've gotten from a so much more, this attitude of friendliness that I can speak to myself and others with, um, you know, I'm a very, you know, messy parent, but I can, show my child how to make mistakes gracefully. Um, and these are things that I didn't think, you know, being a parent would be like. I thought perf being perfect is what you should be like in life. And it turns out that being a human being and acknowledging where I could have done better is really what it's all about. And so I can't thank AA enough for this extraordinary life that I've been given. And most of it's um, between my ears. I have access to my heart and my gut, which are really reliable translators for what's happening in the world. And I'm often not plagued with my thoughts because the steps really have broken the spell of my own mind. So I can be of service to people and really reap the benefits of that non-transactional love. Um, so thanks so much for allowing me to tell my story today. Thank you for your story. There are so many parts that I have questions about and I'm not sure where to start. I guess I'll start with Jimmy Z. So did Jimmy become your sorry for your loss there? I um, would like to hear a little bit more about him. Did he sponsor you? No, he wasn't my sponsor. He was just, um, he was just a guy who <clears throat> we went to the same meeting five days a week. And um, 
uh, he, he was a vegan. So we went to this one restaurant that was a vegan on the Lower East Side called Earth Matters. And we would just eat there every day and shoot the shit. And he just seemed like a, he was a musician, too, and just a regular guy. And it wasn't until I was sober for six months that I realized the place that I had my last drink was literally right next door. It was called The Dark Room, funnily enough. And um, But it, he was just a good guy. For some reason, he liked me. And um, at that point in my life, it was good enough. And it, But, you know, it was more than that. He was a real soulful, sweet guy and he passed sober yep he was sober he died i think of cancer and the so i'll switch gears to a little bit to a little bit less serious i think the pause of the 10 seconds of the doctor well what did he say after the 10 seconds oh yeah i don't have cancer i didn't have cancer um he just he he just said um he said, there's something there. We'll check it in six months or something like that. And it's never been a, been an issue or a problem since. You're a really mm, poetic speaker. You use a lot of great words. Thank and you. I really enjoyed listening to, I mean, there's, there's so many things that you said that I, I'm, I'm going to have to listen to it again to capture it all, but the a couple things that stuck out and they'll remain with me indefinitely is like that person is gone after they take the first drink, mm. and that was my experience over and over again. Mm-hmm. And um, God, you talked about it so many times that feeling of just not belonging here on Earth, you know. Mm-hmm. I used to joke that I was like Superman and I'm like, I landed on the wrong planet, you guys. And today you have Buddhism as you, you said you were a Buddhist and you talked about having um, a speckled, your road was dotted with these white light moments. And I, I read a little bit of Emmett Fox and <clears throat> he talks about just do the spiritual, like, think of it as an experiment, which is what you said, and he calls it a demonstration. And so, so you, you have these white light things, uh, if you look back at your life, and I think Emmett Fox would call those, like, demonstrations. I'm not sure. But if you can talk to me a little bit about how you, the change from when you came into the rooms, this arrogant, atheist asshole... And like who you are today, and perhaps that's what Buddhism looks like, or perhaps that's just the thinking when it comes to step three and 11. What does it look like? Well, what I would say is like AA sort of gave me all of the language I'll ever need (laughs) to be connected to a higher power. And then different things like I read a lot of MF Fox too, or I just became a Buddhist and I, you know, um, it's just I'm looking for the language to sort of like um, fine tune some of it. You know, I consider Al-Anon as part of my 11th step. It's like I'm just seeking, right? I'm trying to seek to align my will with a higher power. And I just liked this. Steve Jobs, funnily enough, um, did this commencement speech at Stanford. And he said, 
And I heard it right when I was first sober. He said, you have to believe in something. And he said, whether it's karma or God, or he went through this long list of things that you have to believe in. He said, you are never going to connect, be able to connect the dots looking forward, but you'll be able to connect the dots looking backward. And that's what it kind of feels like. And I think that the spiritual experience for me is um, that I can see you know, none of the things I would have endorsed actually were the places I had so much growth. I still probably wouldn't have chosen them. Um, that it, I am having spiritual experience and I am t- being taken care of. So how that helps me work in the present is like when a disaster comes around, like we're about to move into a house with no heat in the winter. And that's like disaster might be a strong word, but it's like, you know, <laughs> inconvenient might be maybe a more... Um, realistic word but whatever it is it's like we're you know i do have enough experience and i want to believe that there's something that i can't foresee if i keep aligned with like spiritual principles that i learned from really doing a seven step like the opposite you know the opposite of my defects um something is going to come from it something's going to be okay something unexpected you know a prayer that I like to use a lot is God surprise me. Um, and sometimes I'm very surprised and it's not what I meant. <laughs> it's like, no, I mean, I mean, like, like once I remember saying, God, show me I'm loved. And then a weirdo said, you're the bet, you know? And I was like, oh my gosh, no, not him, God. Um, so I'm always micromanaging God's demonstration. Right. And so, yeah, it's either demonstration, but I think it's really like, it's just reevaluating life from the perspective that everything's okay and exactly how it should have been. That's sort of the psychic change for me is that I see everything differently in retrospect, like the same, like I felt neglected by my mom. Like I said, I don't know if that's true or not. Um, uh, but like she worked a lot. Right. And the same, um, person who worked a lot to save money is now helping put my kid through school. So can I see like the poetry in that? Like this, mm. this thing that felt like neglect probably propelled me into seeking spiritual solution. And now that same thing that I experienced as neglect is putting my kid through school and making my life easier and making his life better. So it's like, can I just get on board with the idea that whatever's happening now might be okay if I can align myself with the idea that I'm being taken care of. I mean, just, you know, just basically I can get lost in the idea. It's just sort of like, you know, to piggyback on what I just said, um, you know, I can get lost in the idea that whatever's happening is not okay. Um, so like, you know, the heating guy didn't show up at our new house, um, cause he can't come till Monday. And what that feels like is I'm going to die. I'm not going to be taken care of. And I think there's like, you know, this is less AA and more of my personal history that informs some of my feelings in the moment. But the spiritual tools I get give me perspective on the feelings enough so that they're not facts, right? I mm-hmm. do, it does require an effort to um, right the ship, so to speak, or realign myself. Like, because if, what happens is if the heating guy is not showing up and then my kid spell, spills water on my guitar amplifier, which is vintage, and it is, it's as old as I am. And um, that feels like I'm not being taken care of and it can feel terrible, like I'm being neglected. 
And I just, you know, I can move through my day through the lens of neglect. So everything now is a transgression. So I have to use the tools I get primarily from AA um, to soberly evaluate what's actually happening. And all that happened was a guy, you know, <laughs> a guy is working on somebody else's house and those people need heat too, right? But I can't often come up with that idea by myself in the moment. But I can often come up with it if I'm willing to put down my own ideas, which are, I have to remind myself, those ideas that propelled my drinking, and propelled my resentments, those aren't me. Um, those actually are who I'm not. So it's just like, a, like it's still an experiment and it's still like I've got a pretty big tool belt, I guess, for lack of a better way to describe it. Like Emmett Fox talks a lot about direct prayer, immediate prayer, like the golden key, which is like, mm. which is, which is, um, corroborated neurologically, right? It's like, I can't simultaneously have two thoughts, even though it feels like I am. So if I'm only praying to God, which the big book says like better men, but better people than me are praying constantly. If I'm only praying. I can't have a different thought in the moment. I'm only praying. So if I'm distressed and terrorized, I might have to constantly pray in order to remember that I'm actually okay. And I did that when I went to testify in my dad's trial. I was, I literally prayed for three hours on the airplane because I was so scared. And then I slept as if I had just, you know, taken a narcotic because. I was finally relieved of the mental obsession and terror after three hours. And it really was like a God thing. But unfortunately, like, like, you know, nobody's going to opt into constant prayer unless they have constant distress. Um, no sponsee has ever reported back what the results of constant prayer are. Cause like we're human and our minds are distracting and we have like 30,000 thoughts a day and like, you know, that's okay. And I love that part of your story, talking about the that meditation you did with becoming a friend with your own mind. Like, oh, yeah, that's obtainable. I can totally do that mm-hmm. instead of fighting against. It's so interesting. And we'll wrap up here. I promise. I just have one more question. But I do love that you experience the heater guy not being able to come. And my big question was, well, why the hell would you buy a house with no heater? but you were going to get a heater. So that makes sense. That totally makes sense. I thought you just were knowingly going to live without a heater. Um, but that's a side note. But you you experience that as not being taken care of. And I would experience that as I'm the victim. I'm pissed at God. I broke same. my... Yeah. Same? But yeah, we're using different language. Yeah, for the same, like, yes. Totally Sentiment. Also, we bought a house where the heater allegedly worked when we bought it, and now it doesn't. So that's why it's like I'm a victim. I'm I'm being punished. Yes. I'm not being taken care of. Like, fuck yes. you people. Fuck houses. <laughs> fuck the housing inspector. You know, like, that's my first, you know, line of thinking is I've been wronged. I've been harmed. And it's like, I don't know. The housing inspector's mom might have Alzheimer's, and he had a rough mind. I don't fuck. Like, I literally don't know. But I love the, I don't know where who it comes from. So I'm not going to misquote it, but like, if you knew everybody's story, you'd love everybody. That's what they say. Right. And that's, and we learned that in AA. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous 
or visit keepcomingback.net.